Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it, and judge it to decide whether it should be set free <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, slowly going vegan in Cambridge, UK. Mm, and me, Dan, simultaneously obsessed with vegan YouTube channels in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> We'll be focusing on fantastic cinema, sci-fi, horror and fantasy for the most part because our favourite vacations are ones with meteor showers, tentacled monsters and a chance to learn about a new culture with the help of a sacred necklace. Hmm. Hello Dan, how are you? Good, thank you. And you Conrad? Yes, I'm very well and enjoying changing my diet. It's funny because I have been obsessed with this YouTube channel called um, Sauce Stash. Oh. And he just makes fake meat products. Ah. He's been making bacon out of radishes, bacon out of banana skins. It's just, it's <laughs> fascinating to me. I think it's fascinating. Uh, well, I'm addicted to Duncan's channel, so you're dating a vegan, which I watched quite a lot of in preparation for our episode, our last episode. Ah, yes. I've sort of got addicted to it and I haven't eaten meat for two three weeks now oh so. wow <laughs> it's good i'm losing weight too <laughs> well i mean it's apparently the most environmental thing to do go vegan so mm. you're helping the environment as well it's not bad <laughs> so i want a t-shirt i interviewed duncan skulls and now i've turned vegan yeah <laughs> he's very pleased about it actually <laughs> oh i'm sure he is he's trying to surreptitiously convert people one podcast at a time <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anything in the mailbag today, Conrad? Well, yes, we heard from Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Serge. Oh, hey, Serge. He was listening to our Blob episode with Duncan, and he said the Blob is easily his second favourite 80s remake of a 1950s horror film written by Frank Darabont. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Very specific. <laughs> Very specific. His absolute favourite is still The Fly 2. Oh, I've never seen that. Mm, we should probably watch that. It's completely overshadowed by the original, I think. Mm, okay. We also heard from Chad Rommel, who said that our episode on Prince of Darkness was wonderful. One of our best episodes, which is very nice of him. What a high praise. Thank you. He said that POD is often overlooked. It's ambitious in terms of intellectual narrative, permeable sense of dread throughout, and JC's minimalist score reigns. And I'm going to work scabby Satan into as many conversations <laughs> as possible. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's what she was, really. <laughs> yeah, she should have been credited as that. <laughs> And we also have a new listener I spotted on Twitter, Christopher Weathers, or Withers? Maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong. Let me know if I am. He said, I have started on Movie Oubliette today based on recommendations, and it is fantastic. So welcome aboard. Yay! And tell all your friends and family and pets. Yes, <laughs> especially <laughs> the pets. Loads of great feedback recently. Yes, always great to hear. And what great movie are we going to be doing today? I have no idea. Let's prize open that oubliette and find out. Yeah. Oh, it's just sandy hole in here today. Oh, that's odd. What's this strange snake-like creature that's hypnotically emerging? Oh, it's got my leg! Ah, I'll shoot it with my plasma gun. Oh, that's a relief. I'll just grab this movie and get back. Oh, your big ugly head. Oh, thanks for that. You're very welcome. And what do you have in your hands today? In my hands, I have Enemy Mine, a 1985 West German-American science fiction film directed by Wolfgang Peterson and starring Dennis Quaid, your favourite, mm. and Louis Gossett Jr. Okay. 
Now, what is this about? Precious rocks? Well, you'd think so, but no. In the midst of an intergalactic war with the reptilian aliens, the Drax, hotshot space fighter pilot Willis Davidge is marooned on a barren alien planet with his nemesis, the Drak Jariba Shigan. Assaulted by freak meteor sparkler showers, remote-controlled tortoises and sarlacc pit monsters, the unlikely duo realise they must bury their differences to survive. Their relationship grows, someone miraculously conceives a child, and (laughs) space hicks turn up with alien slaves. There's all this and more to enjoy in Enemy Mine. Wow. Sounds interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Let's take a break and discuss. And welcome back, listeners, to discuss the 1985 sci-fi enemy mine with my favourite actor, Dennis Quaid. (laughs) This is a listener's choice film uh, Mm. picked by Gary. I believe, Conrad, you have seen this film. Mm. I haven't. What were your initial thoughts? Well, this is a fascinating one. It's got an interesting backstory in terms of its production. I'm not sure how aware you are of this. No, I'm not. So the film was started in April of 1984 with Richard Long Crane as its director. And he's a British director Uh who's primarily known for dramas, to be honest. Okay. The last movie he did was one called Finding Your Feet, which was about elderly people going to a dance class and falling in love with each other and having a new lease of life. So it's that kind of (laughs) cosy BBC drama-y type of stuff. And then he gets picked to head up a massive international production science fiction epic, Mm. which... Seems like an odd choice, really. Although I do feel this film is quite stage play esque. Mm. Like it, it, it does doesn't have many locations. It's mainly two characters, and it has a lot of dialogue. That's very so, true. So I don't know. It's not the most unusual choice of director. No, I guess not. It is very much a character focused, two handed piece. Mm focused on Dennis Quaid and Lewis Gossett Jr., although other people enter the fray and it Mm. becomes a bigger thing towards the end. But originally they were filming in Iceland and Budapest and they filmed for, reports vary, Lewis Gossett Jr. said it was almost two months. Dennis Quaid says it was four to six weeks before 20th Century Fox pulled the plug. They saw the dailies. They were not happy. Mm. It didn't look like an alien environment, which is really weird because Iceland's been used often yeah. for alien environments since. Yeah, it was used in Prometheus. Mm. It was used in Game of Thrones. Was it? <laughs> I guess that's not an alien environment. But <laughs> well, it's a fantasy environment. But Christopher Nolan did lots of his alien planets for Interstellar there as mm. well because it had all the different environments he needed within sort of a stone's throw of each other. So, yeah, I'm not sure why there was an issue with that, but whatever it is, they said that it just lost all of its grandeur. It looked like Earth. It looked like Lou Gossett Jr. was in a rubber reptile suit. They were not happy with it at mm-hmm. all. Okay. So they stopped... Which was a very expensive decision because it already spent seventeen, eighteen million dollars. Oh no way! <laughs> and Dennis Quaid and Lewis Gossett Jr. are on these pay or play contracts, whereby they get paid whether they're filming or not. So it stays like this in a hiatus while 20th Century Fox had a change of management. And usually when the new management comes in, the executives don't want to have anything to do with anything that was started by the previous people. Mm -hmm. They want to dump it on theatres with no marketing budget so it can fail so that they can say, oh, look, our films are better because the ones that were started under the previous guys were rubbish. But unusually (laughs) they decided to actually continue with Enemy Mine They got Wolfgang Peterson, hot off of The NeverEnding Story, which they were very pleased with, to film it. And he shifted production to Bavaria Studios in Munich in what was West Germany at the time. Mm -hmm. Redid all of the sets, redid all of the makeup for Lewis Gossett Jr. Started shooting again in December. So for all that time, from April to December, Dennis Quaid... And Lewis Gossett Jr. being paid... For doing nothing. (laughs) ...just to sit on their backsides. (laughs) And then they made the movie largely on sets, a little bit of uh, location shooting in Lanzarote for the sort of rocky terrains 
enhanced with industrial light and magic matte paintings and so on and so forth. And then the film comes out in December of 1985 and it bombs. It bombs really hard. (laughs) Nobody wants to see this movie. And it kind of has disappeared since, although it's growing in stature since then. And I think it's a fascinating one to look at. So you hadn't seen it. No, no. What was interesting when I read that it was filmed in Bavaria, Germany, Pandorum was also filmed in Germany, which is the other film that we covered with Dennis Quaid. So (laughs) Dennis Quaid must constantly be going back to Germany. I also read (laughs) that um, there's that scene with the pond Mm. that... um, Willis and Jerry uh, first meet, mm. and that's a completely man-made artificial pond. And it was used, uh, the same pond was used in Never Ending Story mm. and Dust Boot as well, both movies directed by Wolfgang Peterson. Yeah. So uh, a bit of recycling there. Yeah. And it, there were lots of scenes in this film that really looked like it was taken from Never Ending Story. It just had that same sort of yeah. quality of atmosphere. Yes. They're very similar movies, actually, made by the same director back-to-back. I mean, the thing that fascinates me about this one is from the very first shot, I think, epitomizes the two warring influences on this. Because on the one hand, you've got Dennis Quaid delivering this voiceover, sort of setting the scene about the Mm. intergalactic war between humans and Drax, and how it was like every other war, there were long periods of silence, and then suddenly, and then you're thrown into this battle that eventually ends up with him stranded on the planet. Mm -hmm. But the very first shot is space, and then this dead body of an astronaut suddenly passes by the (laughs) camera and floats away. So you get the sense that this isn't Star Wars. This is gritty. People are going to die. You're going to see some horrible things here. But at the same time, space is a lot prettier than it's ever been in Star Wars. It's all sort of blue nebulas and purple bits. And it's all very never-ending story and technicolor in terms of the Mm. uh, Mm. visual effects. It does have this sort of fantastical look to it. It looks mm. better than it should look. Yeah. But the content of the film is very serious. It is very, lots of emotion, lots of themes of, I guess, racism. Yeah. Themes of bringing up a, a child that is not the same as everyone else. Mm. Some really heavy stuff. Yes. But then you have the effects of this film. And I just kept just kind of sighing and, and just thinking, <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> is that is that what they could come up with? Even the first scene with uh the dog fight between the fighter spaceships in space and they're all chasing each other and shooting each other and spaceships exploding and it just looks awful. It looks worse <laughs> than Star Wars way worse than Star Wars. It looks like it was filmed in the 50s and they just made it in colour. It was not convincing. <laughs> the explosions were terrible. Everything was just terribly composited green screen effects. And uh, I just kept saying, oh, oh dear. <laughs> but that's industrial light and magic's work. That's really I mean, interesting. I actually thought that the dogfight stuff and the space station wasn't too bad. Really? But as soon as it gets to the point where the ship is crash landing on the alien planet, it's straight out of Thunderbirds. It's yeah. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Really I, bad. I was thinking like Red Dwarf kind of effects, like early yes. Red Dwarf. Yeah, just yeah. obvious <laughs> tiny little models just crash landing on like these tiny little sandy sets with sparklers coming off yeah. as, as explosions. It's, oh. Yeah, and the smoke that gives away the scale. It's terrible, really bad. But I thought the industrial light and magic stuff in space wasn't too bad, uh, but it definitely doesn't like feel like they're bringing their A game. No. It's like, hey, the main guys are over here doing Return of the Jedi We've got this other job that's come in. How about the guy that cleans the vending machine does it or something? It's just like, it's the apprentices yeah. or something. I don't know. It's but some of the mat work I think they do, some of the paintings that they did on it, I think are pretty beautiful. And the sets are incredible. Yeah. In terms of set design on the actual alien planet, Mm. phenomenal. Yeah. Like incredible stuff. Like some of those rocks and 
textures that they created, wow. And mm. even, yeah, like you said, all the matte paintings of the backgrounds of the planets and space and the mm. stars and the night sky, and they look great. You know they're matte paintings, but they look great. Yeah. They look really, really cool. And they really do set the scene of this alien planet. Yeah. So let's think about the story, yeah. because usually we start with that, but <laughs> we went straight into production design. It's very much a two-hander. It's the old tale of the enemies who are brought together in unusual circumstances and learn to love each other, mm. which is always fun to watch. I've always enjoyed that kind of thing. Me too. Hell in the Pacific is probably the most famous war-torn version of it, Okay, uh, which is like a, a 60s World War II movie, I believe. I haven't seen it. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> But it's also the sort of story that's been dealt with on Star Trek in a few episodes. Like I remember there was that one where Picard was on this planet trying to learn an alien language that was all declarative statements. Hmm. I don't know. The sun in the West on Thursday with a milkshake. I don't know. It was, <laughs> wasn't it uh, Paul Winfield who plays the alien in that? Mm, okay. So, yeah, because he's the police chief in The Terminator who gets shot when Arnold Schwarzenegger kills everybody. Yes. Yeah, so it's a fairly familiar story. And it's your favourite actor, Dennis Quaid, mm -hmm. and Lewis Gossett Jr., and I think they do a really good job of it. I think seeing as so much of the film hangs on whether this relationship works, I think that's one area where this really shines. Uh, yeah, I don't... Oh, <laughs> you're going to disagree. This is interesting. I, I think it does and it doesn't. I don't know what it is. I think maybe I'm just a terrible human, <laughs> but I didn't like the character design for the alien. Really? I didn't... Oh. I felt like I couldn't like him. That was not the most pretty character design for an alien no. to really kind of hold on to as a likable character. Does that mean that I am the worst person, that I am judging him <laughs> because he doesn't look like a beautiful alien, he doesn't have soft features? Is that me? Is that... Yes. Because I just... I found him really, really annoying <laughs> and not nice to look at and... Uh, I don't know. I The acting was great. I think Dennis Quaid gave 110% towards the character and acting and development of that character. Mm. I was really impressed. And, and there were moments where I was like, holy shit, he's really putting his all into this. Like, he's really committing to this character. Yeah. But I don't know whether the character design works on the other end. It just seemed like a terrible Star Trek prosthetic alien to me. Oh. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I think if this movie was remade now with some better prosthetics and effects, I think it would be a lot more endearing, but I just couldn't emotionally attach to it. Oh. I really found the Jerry character to be intolerable. Really? <laughs> wow. Because... I quite like that makeup. I mean, it went through a hell of a lot of revisions and changes. Oh, really? Poor Chris Wallace. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his name. Wallace? Wallace? He did the special effects for Cronenberg's The Fly, amongst mm. other things. He's, yeah, really talented guy. And he went through hell trying to come up with a design that Wolfgang Peterson was happy with. Yeah. So it's got the whole membranes with the bladder effects mm. on the side of the head and the sort of insect-like shell on the back of the head and the weird teeth and the eyes. And yeah, it's a very detailed makeup. And Lou Gossett Jr. is often praised for managing to create this whole alien culture and this way of moving and this way of speaking, the whole language that he's speaking, which is largely his invention. Mm. And he's often received a lot of praise for managing to project a character that you grow to admire, respect in terms of his spiritualism and you see him as an honourable man and eventually a very devoted parent. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's supposed to be a great character and I'm always sold on this, mainly because of Lou Gossett Jr. I think. I think he's fantastic in this. It comes down to, for me, just the character design. Mm. I think the acting was great. I think the characters were well intended, but that character design, to me, it was like a cross between like a toad, an armadillo, <laughs> yep. and uh, a pine cone. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it just... Scaly characters don't 
look lovable to me. No. Maybe it was just the times and it just, they couldn't quite pull it off. But it, I don't know. I'm the worst, obviously. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I mean, you have to have characters that you can fall in love with. And if the design doesn't work for you, I remember this was one of the problems with the animation James and the Giant Peach was that kids were sort of crying in the theatre and they wanted to get out because all of these insectile characters with the spindly legs yeah. and the weird people just weren't down with it. They just could not relate to these characters at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have to be able to relate to the character designs. Yeah. As much as I disliked Jerry's character, whoa, did I despise the little kid um, oh, that no. he gives birth to. You're hating Zamus now. even worse. Oh, no. He was horrible. And especially the baby version of him, I was just like, I know this is supposed to be adorable and cute and, like, very emotional, but I just thought, yuck. He looks like... (laughs) Like, they just got some mud together and squished it together into some sort of baby alien. (laughs) Gosh, you're so alienist. I know, I know. This is terrible. I'm the worst. I'm obviously the worst. This is... I'm obviously not the audience that this film was for. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. So in terms of the story, how do you feel about Davidge? His progression from gung-ho, desperate to kill everybody. I mean, the whole reason that he's in this situation is because he is so hell-bent on shooting down Jerry because he Mm. shot down one of his squadron. Mm. So he's hell-bent on shooting him down and ends up entering the atmosphere and therefore they both crash together. Mm. And he goes from that, from being this completely gung-ho, alpha male, indoctrinated, hate-thy-enemy kind of person, to grudging respect, to actually learning his culture and learning his language. And then, of course, spoiler alert, raising his child for him because um, Mm -hmm. Jerry doesn't survive the childbirth. And then getting to the point that he is so emotionally connected to this child that he's raised, which grows in three scenes, like one montage and he's yeah, <laughs> he's like 10 years old. Yes. So that when you have this third act, which is all not about escaping the planet, but actually rescuing the child from evil slave drivers who use them to mine alien planets, mm-hmm. which apparently was something that was inserted because the producers looked at the script and said, where's the mine? (laughs) Because there wasn't one in the story. Yeah, I was confused as well. Like, enemy mine, it just didn't... I don't think that's a great title. Well, it's a possessive, isn't it? So it's mine enemy. Mm. That's what it's going for. But some producer looked at it and thought, (laughs) but where's the mine? So they had to add one. (laughs) Which is terrible, so depressing. But yeah, so he has to rescue his child. So he goes from being this gung-ho guy all the way through to being a pretty decent human being and a loving parent Mm. and a very soulful, spiritual guy who's in touch with his ancestry and his responsibilities to the world, to the universe. Mm. Yeah, it's quite a full-on growth he's got going there. And I know you're not a huge fan of Dennis Quaid, I think Inner Space helped turn the corner for you. Yeah. How did you feel he did here? Because I think he's amazing. Yeah, I think he gave it his all. I really, I Mm. I felt like he acted his ass off. Mm. Like he really put as much as he could into that role. And I feel like all the sort of production design and and effects and stuff just kind of didn't help to sell that. Mm. It's like if you got Leonardo DiCaprio to act in a spoof movie. Right. It's just like he's way better than that movie is conveying. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The core themes of this film are great. I love the themes and I love Mm. just the material of it, how dense it is, but I don't think it conveys across. Even the fact that at the start, Davidge has this completely unreasonable hatred towards this alien race just because they're at war and had never even seen the alien race in person. No. That's 
incredible, just this blind hatred towards the enemy. Mm. And I love that that ties in with modern day warfare, that sort of similar blind hatred they have. And, and once you actually get to know them and find out about their religion and how that they are just people, you can mm. relate even though they're different. They look different, they have a different way of life, but you have a connection to them because they're still humans. And I guess the alien in this movie is still humanity and aliens. They're not completely mm. homicidal, murderous animals. They still have heart, they have spirituality, they have love. So I love the themes. Yes. But I don't think the movie conveys them. And pacing-wise, God, this movie goes on for an hour longer than it should have. <laughs> it just keeps going <laughs> and going and going. And I felt like this could have been a great, concise Star Trek episode. Well, it has been. <laughs> it was called Darmok. Yeah. Oh, yes. Wow. Yes. But this movie just smears it out to an hour and 48 minutes or however long it is. Ah. And it just it felt like it dragged a lot. Gosh. Maybe you should have seen the UK theatrical version because <laughs> when it was first released here, yes. they cut about 18 minutes out of it. So it was a clean hour and a half. Oh, okay. And it was missing a lot of the character development, any scene where Jerry was talking about his spirituality or singing from the Talman, his sacred text, uh-huh. or reciting his lineage. A lot of that stuff went. Right. So you ended up with... Yeah, much uh, slicker pace, but it lacked the so depth, depth and the character development. Yeah. I'm shocked to hear you say that about the pace, because <laughs> one of the things I really enjoy about this film is that you do feel as you go through this, I think he's there for three or four years, if you look at the computer readout when he's rescued. Mm. If you look at this, you really do get the feeling that you have been through this epic journey that has spanned years Mm. I mean, you felt it (laughs) in a different way. (laughs) It's like, when is this going to be over? But I do feel as though when you get to the end, to see him with all of his hair shaved short and to see him back in uniform again, Mm. it seems so odd because it seems so long since you've seen him look like this. And I I quite like the epic feel of it. I could watch more. In some ways, I think that it's just a little bit too rushed, the ending. Mm. It feels like he's rescued and then... And he's back and then he just has one scene where he's in a hospital getting bullets removed Mm. and then he goes back and then there's a big action scene and he rescues his kid and that's the end of it. And it just seems a little bit too fast, you know. I would have liked to have seen him recuperating and dealing with the fallout at home with here's this guy that's speaking this alien language. Has mm. he gone native? You know, has he mm-hmm. turned on his his former comrades? You know, I would have been interested in that, but it's not interested in doing that. It's just like one scene on the space station and then he's going back to the alien planet again. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would have liked to have seen him convalescing because I thought it would have been good to have a callback to Nurse Murchison, is that her name? Oh, yes. The the white balloon (laughs) that his co-pilot is talking about at the beginning because he's got a hot date that night, which is terrible. If he'd shown a photograph... It definitely would have told you that he was he was doomed <laughs> because his co-pilot does not survive the battle. No. But yeah, I thought it would have been good if the white balloon could have nursed Davidge back to health and you could see his growth as a human being because he would be respectful towards her. And... Uh-huh, uh-huh. But yeah, the pacing works for me. I quite... In fact, it was quite an eye-opener for me to go from the VHS that I watched as a child which was 90 minutes, the British version. And then when I got the Laserdisc in the 90s... Oh, Laserdisc, yes. All of a sudden there's 20 extra minutes in here and it's like, wow, where are all these extra scenes come from? Yeah, yeah, right. A different trajectory for me, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I think (laughs) I just found it slow. The character design just wasn't convincing... Some of the visuals didn't match the tone. No. And and also, like you said, uh, the ending just seemed kind of slapped on as mm. an action climax of the film. And some of the gore was just like out of left field. Yeah. Like, did we need to see that? Yeah, it comes out <laughs> of nowhere, doesn't it? You know, a guy getting munched in half by it's a mining machine and yeah. another guy getting thrown into like molten metal and getting just yeah melted. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like... Very shocking. Yeah, it earned a 15 certificate here in the UK. I don't think it did anywhere else in the world. 
it was PG in the US and Australia and New Zealand, mm -hmm. but in the UK, the BBFC took one look at it and said, this is a bit harsh. <laughs> <laughs> but there are only very few scenes, though. Most of it is dialogue mm -hmm. and pretty much just one location. Yeah. But yeah, just a few scenes of very gory, bloody people, I guess. And the tone just seemed very off to me. And yeah. I like films that have discussion and differences of opinion and characters. I love Linklater movies. Right. As we've mentioned, <laughs> we mentioned in the, in the last episode, yeah. Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight. Yeah, you were expecting that this would be the alien version of that. <laughs> yeah, and I do feel that sort of discussion in, in his movies, Linklater movies, are, it's much more profound and much more engaging. And I felt the discussion that the two characters were having in Enemy Mind just seemed quite basic yeah quite two-dimensional discussion like i'm different i'm different let's talk about it and then <laughs> let's call the whole thing off I, there wasn't any sort of <laughs> obviously there was the language barrier because one character was an alien so mm -hmm. they had to learn each other's language and that was kind of quite compelling but uh, mm -hmm. it also meant that their discussion was very very basic in terms of like the words they use and they couldn't really delve into really deep and meaningful sort of ideas about maybe more existential stuff they could have talked about i don't know right it, it, yeah didn't seem as intelligent as it could have been. One of the things that I've seen critics criticise the movie for is that although it evokes two strands of racism that are obviously hot-button issues, particularly in the States, hmm. the obvious one is slavery. Sure. It has to be pointed out that both of the actors portraying the aliens are African-American actors. Mm -hmm. So you've got Lou Gossett Jr., who just won an Oscar a few years before for being a gunnery sergeant in An Officer and a Gentleman with Richard Gere. Mm -hmm. And then as Zamis, you have Larry C. Bumper Robinson II. Ooh. That's a name and a half, isn't it? That's, <laughs> that's a line fitting of Jeriba, isn't it, really? And he was 10 at the time, and he went on to become quite a famous voice actor on things like Transformers and oh. Marvel animations. So even though they're covered up with, in your opinion, not very convincing mm. makeup, yeah. they are still black actors being enslaved by white guys who... Is it too much of a stretch for me to say that they look like they're coded to be Southern? They are, 100%. They pretty much are, mm. aren't they? I mean, you've got Brian James, who's Leon from Blade Runner who's just batshit crazy like he always is. Yeah. <laughs> but everybody else, they do kind of look as though they are coded as hicks. So you've got that. And then the second issue, obviously, is um, colonialism. So the whole reason that the Earthlings and the Drax are at war is because the Earthlings have just been expanding, as Drax says, like a disease. Mm. And they've encroached upon the Drax territory and the Drax are fighting back, saying, no, this is ours. And so it's the whole colonialism and indigenous peoples being wiped out by Western expansion kind mm, of thing. Sure. So it's hitting on two very hot button issues, but it doesn't really deal with them. That's the criticism, that it's fairly timid exactly. in how it approaches it, doesn't really get its teeth stuck into it. But for 1985, yeah, not uh, bad. I don't know. Yeah, like I said, it's just like surface level mm. discussion about it. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I liked the scene where David was kind of talking about his lineage mm. and same with Jerry. They were talking about their family and, and like their, and their mother and their father. And that was kind of profound and endearing. But I kind of wanted more, a little bit more about that, like yeah. more of them talking about their previous lives and, and sort of getting to know them as kind of hu like human beings, but, you know, as characters, you know. People, yeah. Um, <laughs> But they didn't really expand on it as much as they could have. Right. I just found a lot of the dialogue would kind of go in the right direction, but then stop. Mm. It didn't go as far as I wanted it to go. And in that respect, it felt quite predictable. Yeah. Apart from the whole pregnancy thing, that was startling. Yeah, that came out of left field. <laughs> I was wondering how you'd feel about that. Because, yeah, the third act of the movie, or is it it's sort of the second half? Because Jerry dies, spoilers. Yeah, an <laughs> hour into the two-hour film, he dies. Yes. Yes. The second main character that you think is going to be throughout the whole film. He dies. And then you're left with the kid who you find irritating. Awful. Awful. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess he is slightly irritating. But you do lose something once Lewis Gossett Jr. is out of the picture, Mm. literally. But I was so fascinated by the growth in Davidge and in the new situation that he found himself in. And it kind of picks up pace after that anyway, which is what I was complaining about, because the kid grows up in a montage. They have a few conversations about the fact that he's different, that he only has three fingers Mm. and that he will never get four and five. But then pretty quickly he's kidnapped by hicks that call him a woggy oh no which is not great i didn't actually catch that yeah (laughs) yeah he says fine little woggy if i ever saw one which i'm not sure whether that phrase is ever picked up in the states but certainly it was a phrase that was used in the british colonial era it's interesting because Mm -hmm. in australia wogs are um mediterranean people right italians lebanese turkish greeks they're all considered wogs. And it's kind of like, you can kind of say it, but you can't kind of say it. Like, mm. I would never say to a Lebanese guy that word. No. But it's still kind of in the vernacular of most Australians. Is it? Oh, it's died a death here. Yeah, it's interesting because it's not quite offensive, but is kind of offensive depending on the context. Mm. So I just never say it. So <laughs> No. It's in there, and I think it's there for a very obvious reason. Mm, mm, yeah, mm. so he's he's kidnapped, and then you have the whole rescue, and then it comes to a conclusion, and Davidge is this... He's the great white man that's going to end the war. It yes. sort of dances with wolves again, isn't it? It's that kind uh, of thing. The white... What's it called? The white saviour? Yeah. There's that thing going around social media about all these famous white celebrities going to Africa and getting these almost posed pictures with all these African children and being the white saviour. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. It feels feels a little bit like that in this film. A little bit, but still. Baby steps. It's progress, I think. I think it, like, in its core, it has great intentions. Mm. But I just don't know whether it conveys that. I mean, there is one thing in terms of the storyline that I just didn't understand about this film. Okay. Like Crash Land, and they just set up camp forever. Yep. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> Why didn't they explore? Like, it seems like years before Davidge decides, hmm, maybe I should just walk that way for a bit <laughs> and see what's over there. <laughs> what? I'm slightly puzzled by when they first meet. Davidge thinks that setting on fire of the surface of the lake that Jerry is swimming under yes. is going to hurt him in any way. Uh, why, why does he think that's going to work? Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah, I thought that was interesting as well. <laughs> and also when he did decide to finally explore the planet, he finds all this these remains like litter, or rubbish from humans, mm. and he picks up a Pepsi can. <laughs> oh, come on, product placement. <laughs> He's going to do the taste test even now. <laughs> yeah, and all, of course the Pepsi can is weirdly shaped. because It's, it's the, the future. future. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This film sort of reminded me of there's that terrible E.T. ripoff movie, um, Mac and Me, oh. which is just a giant <laughs> no. advertisement, I think. It is. They have just heaps of product placement. It is, yeah. It was paid for by McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And I hate to say it, but the character design of the alien kind of reminded me of the character design of of Mac in Mac and Me. Oh, Uh, no. Just, just, (laughs) I can't put my finger on it. It just did not work. Mac looks like a potato. (laughs) I know. He looks awful. But I don't know. You compare that to E.T. and E.T. looks great. And you really feel for E.T. You love him. He's a great character. Mm. And I just didn't feel for Jerry. And... His son was worse, like it didn't, oh. didn't feel for him at all. <laughs> oh dear. I mean, his vocalizations were really interesting because he did that himself. Yeah. Like his kind of like 
kind yeah. of sound that he added to his speech and his idea, I think, was it? It is, yeah. So apparently when he was a child, he used to gargle with his guitar, oh, which is okay. lovely. <laughs> what a charming child he must have been. But yeah, so he went to the director. I'm not sure whether it was Richard Long Crane or Wolfgang Peterson, but he went to them and said, how about if I speak like this? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, yeah, go for it. So <laughs> Yeah. 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 It's his party trick. He still does it at conventions, apparently. If you ask Lou Gossett Jr., he will do some drag ah, singing for you. Right. I love that in Morris Shah's score, there is a whole choir gargling <laughs> at the end of the movie. <laughs> because you go to the drag homeworld, yes. and I think Davidge is supposed to be there with Zamis mm. singing the line of Jeriba to induct him into society. Mm, mm. And uh, yeah, so you've got this whole choir sort of gargling. <laughs> I think it's synthesized. I don't think they asked a professional choir to stand there and gargle, but oh. <laughs> it's a marvellous little touch there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I'm not sure whether that works either in terms of speech, because I don't know. I've got no standing in terms of my argument for why I don't like this film, but there are just so many parts of it that just didn't work for me <laughs> oh okay so what about Morris Jarre's score then what did you think of the music I actually really liked it ah. I thought it was great his orchestral cues were really cool uh, he used synth mm. as well there were some sort of electronic kind of sounds in there yeah the, the whole film actually did kind of feel like a 50s sci-fi right like, <laughs> the effects were just kind of that terrible but also the <laughs> sort of orchestral early synthesizer sounds were kind of similar to stuff like the day the earth stood still oh, war right, of the yeah. worlds and stuff like it has that similar vibe in terms of a score mm. and i really liked it i thought it was actually really cool and it did the thing that movies do where they don't have quite enough money for the effects so they can kind of make up for it with the score. Right. The scene yeah. with the Skarlack monster that you mentioned, sort of mesmerizing tentacle tongue thing that emerges <laughs> from the sand, looks awful. It's the simplest effect they could possibly have done. <laughs> yeah, it's like a hose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the score makes it sound way more terrifying than it actually is. Yeah. So Morris Jarre is, of course, most famous for his work with David Lean. So he would oh. do these massive epics like Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago right. and A Passage to India. And he won Oscars for all three. So he's a hugely celebrated orchestral composer from the Golden Age. Ah. And it's quite a coup for them to have him on this movie because one of those Oscars, A Passage to India, was the year before. It was 1984. Wow. And at this point in his career, he was just starting to move into using synthesizers as well. Sometimes just synthesizers like Witness. Oh, with Harrison Ford. Yeah. I studied that at high school. <laughs> Did you? Cool. Yes. So the barn building cue is very famous in that score. Ah, oh, yeah. I know that scene very well. Yeah. I wrote essays about it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's him doing his synthesizer thing. I like the way that he blends synthesizer with the full orchestra and how for the first half of the movie, it's very synthetic and very cold. Hmm. And it's only after the two of them have reached a sort of fragile understanding and Jerry has rescued Davidge's life once that you then get this big expansive orchestral cue of them exploring the world around them. Mm -hmm. And that... I think works really well. What I don't like is the synthetic sounds that he chooses. It just sounds like grandpa picking the worst presets <laughs> on an 80s keyboard. <laughs> it's like Jerry Goldsmith had people who programmed for him and uh -huh. he used presets a lot, but he would sort of pick the cool ones, whereas Grandpa Jar, <laughs> whose son is Jean-Michel Jar, so he should really know better, but it seems like he picks the really naff settings, like that oh. electronic wind instrument noise that he's using for the main theme all the time. Yeah. And some of it just sounds really tacky to me. <laughs> oh, I kind of liked I always have a soft spot for synth 80s scores. Yeah, it's okay. It works for me. Mm, I think it works. Now it's time for Random Trivia. 
So Dan, what nugget of trivia have you rescued from the tentacle of a vicious sarlacc pit creature today? Well, we have mentioned the language of the alien uh, drac, uh, Jerry. Mm. Lewis Gossett Jr. was kind of gargling Sliver, as he, I guess, as <laughs> yeah. he was speaking. But that language was actually made up from scratch for the film. Right. And they actually used a lot of Russian, just mm. pronounced backwards, <laughs> I think. So um, that's pretty innovative in terms of creating a language for a sci-fi. Yeah. Because I always think that's a lot of work to create a language for a film that will only be for that film, you know? It is, yeah. And you can tell with things like Klingon that it's just started out as random nonsense and then they've eventually got to the point where they had to do a dictionary. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. <laughs> Impressive. Wow. It's like Tolkien doing dozens of languages. I, I think know. he spent more time on all of the languages for Lord of the Rings than actually writing Lord of the Rings. Right, right. But that was his thing, I guess. Mm. Fascinating trivia. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. Well, listeners, I'm sure you're all waiting patiently in a shelter made out of dead alien bug shells for the Moobly Awards. It's where we take our favourite parts of the film in a plethora of miraculously conceived categories. Best quote. My favourite quote is Jariba talking about Davidge's loneliness because when he's giving birth he knows that he's probably going to die and Davidge says don't leave me, I don't want to be alone on this alien planet. Mm. And his reply is, you are alone. Within yourself you are alone. That is why you humans have separated yourselves into separate halves for the joy of that brief union. Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, Mm. some great profound quotes in here. Very existential stuff. Yeah, here and there there is. I mean, that's one of the things that I think people have noted is quite progressive about the film as well, is not only is it dealing with issues of slavery and colonialism, but also a single gender and a different Mm. approach to gender. That's true, that's true. Because Jerry is, of course, asexual and reproduces asexually, and he is both the male and female all joined into one. So it's, yeah, it's quite interesting. Ah, ah. Well, my favourite quote uh, is also to do with kind of that sort of existential theme of the film. It's when Jerry has saved Davidge from the Salak tongue. Uh, and Davidge <laughs> asks Jerry, like, why did you save me? You know, we're enemies. And then Jerry replies, maybe I need to look at another face even as ugly as yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because as ugly as you find, Jerry, Davidge shares that opinion at the beginning, doesn't he? He's yeah. not impressed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and Jerry finds... Davidge ugly, you know? Yeah, you know? it does. He thinks he's grim. Beauty is, is in the eye of the beholder. Yes, it is. Except for you. <laughs> Except you for me. hate aliens. <laughs> <laughs> most 80s moment. My most 80s moment of the film, and I, I feel like I say it every time we watch an 80s film, but just the sweetiness. <laughs> Everyone just looks so damn sweaty in these 80s movies. <laughs> It's constantly just sprayed with a spray bottle or something. Yeah, I think it's all the synthetic fibres. Nothing was breathable, so everybody was oh. like really sweaty back then. That's what yeah, it right. was. <laughs> and for you, Conrad? For me, the most 80s thing is the biracial buddy comedy. Oh, sure. So it started with things like Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder, and then there were lots of cop movies like 48 Hours with Nick Nolte and mm. Eddie Murphy in 1982. Lethal and Weapon. Lethal Weapon, yeah. Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. Yes. So there were loads of these, but this kind of anticipates the more sensitive examination of masculinity that came with later pairings like this. So something like the Shawshank Redemption. So I think this Mm. is kind of like the relationship between Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman in the Shawshank Redemption. If Red died and Andy Dufresne raised his child for him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Favourite scene! As much as I have ridiculed the Salak monster. I quite like the Salak monster scene. (laughs) 
the first one or the second one? There were three, actually. The oh. very first one was the bug getting eaten by it. And I thought that was yeah. hilarious because there was no <laughs> sense of size because, first of all, the bug, you had no idea how big that was. No. And the salak tongue, you had no idea how big that was. So I thought it was tiny. And then you have the second scene <laughs> with this giant pit and a giant tongue, but with Dennis Quaid as a reference. Then you realise, oh, it was actually way bigger than you thought it was. Yeah. And then the third scene, you have the Sarlacc monster enter into their shelter and then suddenly everything just collapses for some reason. All the pillars yeah. around the shelter just fall over. <laughs> Why? I don't know. I don't know. No. <laughs> Well, we'd already established that Davidge was already shit builder, hadn't we? So. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the funniest scenes is him saying shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and what was your favourite? Mine is Jerry telling Davidge that he's pregnant. I just love that scene. I think it's full of genuine warmth between them. Mm. It's during the snow, so it's a different season on the planet. There's a passage of time, and it's instead of being so harsh, it looks quite pretty. Mm. And that's when Davidge finds out that he's going to be a dad. Well, mm. an uncle. I don't know how this works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it just seems like a romantic scene, and I love. Dennis Quaid's performance when he says, How? Don't look at me. <laughs> yeah. It seems so genuine. It really does. It is, yeah. It's a lovely scene between the two of them. And I think it really warms you to their characters, both of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Although not you. <laughs> Best hair or costume? Uh, I didn't have anything. For hair and costume. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I didn't have anything either, but I was fairly impressed with the progress of Davidge's hair from crew cut to full-on ah. Robinson Crusoe. Me too, me too, actually. <laughs> Wild hair and beard. I thought they managed it really well and it never looked fake. I thought it was good. Yeah. And, and then when he comes back to the planet, like all clean-shaven and it looks weird... Like he looks, yes. because you're so used to him being all disheveled and tramp-like and then suddenly he's all yeah. clean and shaved. It does look peculiar. So Zamis doesn't recognise him and says, Uncle, you look terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's really sweet. Most clichéd sci-fi moment. I don't know if mine's a sci-fi cliché or an action cliché because it happens in both but it's killing your co-pilot. Oh, yes. <laughs> it really does happen to both. It does. So Luke does it to Dak in The Empire Strikes Back. Then Davidge does it to poor Joey in 1985. And then Maverick does it to Goose in Top Gun in oh, 1986. Yes. So in any of these movies, do not be the co-pilot. <laughs> it's just it's not a good idea. No. My sci-fi cliche for this film is it's kind of a pet peeve. Mm. Whenever there's a sci-fi, when they land on an alien planet and they just waltz on out, <laughs> expecting it to be oxygen-filled. Yeah. And it, it's just not even talked about at all. There's no, like, hesitation when he takes off his helmet. It's just like, oxygen. Yeah. What? Yeah, it's universal. <laughs> <laughs> All planets have oxygen, right? Yeah, they do, and the right temperature, and yeah, gravity's the same. <laughs> favorite special effect. Well, I have a sneaking suspicion that you don't have any favorite effects mm. from this movie. Yeah, I've got I've got a list of worst effects. Uh, I guess. Oh God! There's a one scene where Davidge tries to steal Jerry's capsule or contents of his capsule or the, the plasma gun or something oh, and he gets electrocuted yeah. and it's just uh, the worst electrocution effects just this drawn on <laughs> fuzzy green line and Dennis Quaid <laughs> trying really hard to act like he's being electrocuted <laughs> and uh, I just groaned at that scene awful <laughs> How about you, Conrad? Well, I really liked the baby Zamis. Oh, no. <laughs> you think that he just looks like a glistening turd, but I really like him. I think one thing that helps with him is that his eyes are closed. Yeah. So I thought the movement was very fluid. And then when Davidge feeds him a piece of food that he's chewed a bit himself, because that's the only way he can get him to eat, there's this little tongue that comes out, which is a bit of a surprise. Yeah. And I thought they did the baby 
quite well, actually. I quite liked it. I was sold on it. I mean, it did its job in terms of conveying a baby. Yeah. Just design-wise, no. No for me. No. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> Best sound effect! I mean, the sound wasn't bad. I kind of laughed, but was also kind of quite impressed by the sound of the thunder storm that they had. Yeah. So they kind of mixed in like real thunder with these big kind of kind of synth sounds. (laughs) I I kind of liked them. I thought it was kind of cool. And then coupled with that, visually they had all these, instead of flashes of just white or blue, they had flashes of red and pink and neon green and all these kind of neon colours. And I don't know. Alien planet? Why not? Yeah. It gave you the sense of a different environment. It did. It did. A different atmosphere, which, of course, they can still breathe. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, I just have a list of sound effects that I hate. Oh, yes. (laughs) I think in the first Sarlacc pit scene with the Sarlacc tongue, the cartoon slurping and belching at the end really undermines the whole thing. It's supposed to give you a sense of how dangerous this alien environment is, but it just it's completely undermined by these cartoon sound effects. Yeah. It felt like I was watching the labyrinth or something. Yeah. It just wasn't <laughs> yeah. it wasn't terrifying. That's a good call. It was just comical and just a little bit childish. I don't know. Yeah, it's not it's again tonally this this film is up and down. Mm. But I think probably the best sound effect is Lewis Gossett Jr.'s voice. I do like the uh Qatar gurgling and singing that he does I think it's yeah quite inventive props to him for actually creating it naturally yeah without any post-production or any weird prosthetics or anything mm. good job most funniest scene for me the funniest moment was just the Sarlacc scenes as much as I <laughs> enjoyed them entertainment wise they were pretty funny and just <laughs> things happening just inexplicably or, or not knowing the size of the Sarlacc tongue thinking it was this tiny little thing (laughs) (laughs) yeah well for me i thought that the funniest moment was when davidge is infiltrating the enemy mine uh, Uh to rescue zamis one of the things he does is throw one of the evil hick southerners into a milling machine or something that just grinds him into a million pieces so when he's finally captured and brian james comes in to sort of lord over him ha oh, we have you he just holds up a severed ear and yes. says hi <laughs> what the hell is that yeah i i just felt that those characters kind of they didn't develop them enough they just seemed odd no oddly placed and too yeah. overt and just these are the bad guys yeah they pretty much did everything they possibly could to be evil didn't they yeah they did <laughs> and that's our boobies Would you like to hear my thoughts? Oh, hi, Gary. Well, you actually did pick this film, so by all means. Well, it's a criminally underrated movie. Ah, Conrad will certainly agree with you about Enemy Mine. No, Grease 2. Are you serious, Gary? You picked this film and you haven't even seen it? Do you? Well, I'm sure you've been on tenterhooks waiting for the final verdict, and here it is. Should Enemy Mine be released from the evil southern slave traders into the loving arms of Dennis Quaid? Or should it be grabbed by a tongue and dragged into the Sarlacc pit to be eaten alive? Dan, I've got a funny feeling I know what your final verdict is going to be, but let's hear it. All right. Well, yeah, I didn't I didn't like this film. I found oh. it very slow. Uh, the themes were solid mm-hmm. in sort of their base value, I guess, but they didn't yeah. really go into as much depth as I wanted. I felt the characters weren't as likeable as they could have been. Mm. Production-wise, yeah, didn't work. The effects didn't convert the sort of grittiness of it the fact that they were stranded on an alien planet it just didn't seem as dangerous as it should have been Mm. and as the film progressed it it just kind of got worse Uh, so (laughs) (laughs) 
well. I, I would like to point out, though, that this this film is the third film that we've done with Dennis Quaid, and he is wow. now in the lead in terms of a repeat actor being in, in a film that we've discussed. <laughs> He's followed by Kiefer Sutherland, um, who was in Melancholia and The Vanishing, oh, yeah. and also Sam Neill who was in Dead Calm and in The Mouth of Madness. So Dennis Quaid is in the lead. I'm just going to write it on my little tally here. (laughs) (laughs) So props to Dennis for taking the lead on that, but uh, Enemy Mine does not take the lead in my mind as a a very good film. But uh, (laughs) Conrad, what were your thoughts? There's a lot of Dennis in the oubliette. I think it's because he's kind of a poor man's Harrison Ford. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. Interestingly, Richard Long Crane has directed a movie with Harrison Ford subsequently after being fired from Enemy Mine. He did the thriller Firewalk. Ah. And Wolfgang Peterson did Air Force One, just talking about movie connections. And Dennis Quaid, of course, has appeared in a movie with Lewis Gossett Jr. before. They were both in Jaws 3D. All right. Yes. <laughs> So Lou Gossett Jr. was nominated for an Oscar one year and then the following year he was nominated for a Razzie Award. And they talked about how Enemy Mine was going to be their redemption, that they were going to redeem themselves by being in this movie together. And... I think they did. I really like Enemy Mine. I love the relationship. I think it's one of Dennis Quaid's best performances. I think he's very good in Inner Space, but that's a lighter comedic role. And Mm. it's also more of an ensemble piece. Whereas this very much is a two-hander. And I think that Dennis does an amazing job of going from this alpha male all the way through to this grudging respect and then becoming a responsible parent and a better human being. And I thought Lewis Gossett June does an amazing job in that makeup of creating a whole alien culture and a way of speaking and a spiritualism and singing and physicality as well, the way he moves. I thought he did a really good job. I'm kind of sad that he disappears halfway through. Mm. I do find the kid a bit irritating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm so sold on Davidge's love for him because of Dennis Quaid's performance. And so I'm bought into the finale where he rescues him, although it all seems a bit rushed. But you do feel like you've been on an amazing journey with this character. I think Morris Charles' music's beautiful. The visuals are beautiful. A little bit too beautiful, really. Mm. I could have done with a grittier tone to the Mm. thing. It's a bit never-ending story too, isn't it, really? But although it's not one of my favourite movies, I think it deserves a lot more attention than it got when it first emerged in Christmas of 1985 and died a horrible death, Mm. so... I would vote to let it go. Ah, right, right. So you know what this means? Yes, it's time for... The Coin of Fate. I love that spooky voice. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Would you like to do the honours, Conrad? Sure. Are you going to go for heads or tails? Mm, Tails. Okay, here we go. It's heads! Yay! No! (laughs) (laughs) I won! And (laughs) Jerry's oddly shapen head has won the day. Oh, no. Oh, well. (laughs) I'm pleased about that. I think it does deserve a second look. I Hmm. really do. Well, I'm sure Gary is also pleased about that, whether he's seen it or not. Yes, Gary, our patron. Thank you for suggesting this movie. Haven't seen it in a long time, so it was fun to revisit. Sure was. Better let that baby Drax scuttle away. Another one has left the fold. We're on a bit of a roll at the moment. I think that's, is that seven that we've let go in a row? Yeah. And we've been doing a lot of 80s films recently as well. We have, yes. So I think we should probably go for something slightly different next time. What will it be, Dan? Well, I thought we'd uh, venture into the noughties Mm. and discuss the Jim Henson Company fantasy film. Mirror Mask. Oh, I don't even think I've heard of this one. (laughs) Well, it's, uh, like I said, uh, Jim Henson production from 2006, Mm. uh, adapted from a story by Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean, and also written and directed by Dave McKean. 
So yeah, interested to take a look at this one. Yeah, this is definitely oubliette material because I've heard of The Dark Crystal, which of course Netflix is reviving as we speak. Yes. And Labyrinth, but I have never heard of this at all. (laughs) It's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, I do remember enjoying it, but who knows how well the effects have held up. Look forward to that. And if you want to look forward to all of our episodes, and we do actually release an episode every second Tuesday. I'm not sure whether anyone knows this, (laughs) Uh, but we are on all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I'm still waiting on someone to pull me up on my trivia because I never fact check it. (laughs) I never know if it's actually true. So please, if I say something that's completely false, let us know. Yes, please do. Correct us on our trivia and maybe even tell us some new trivia that we haven't mentioned about Enemy Mine or any other film that we've covered. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, and you can, of course, email us on movie.oubliette at gmail.com as well. Yes, please do. And if you'd like to sponsor our show, then you can head on over to Patreon. You can support us for as little as a dollar and suggest movies that we could cover. Just like Gary. Just like Gary did, yes. And if you pay $5, then you get access to lots of bonus material, including videos and extra podcast bits that we've cut out, and extra discussions with our guests about their own movies, all sorts of things. Mm, And you'll feel very warm and fuzzy inside as well. You will. You'll feel good. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us, listeners. Stay tuned next time. Bye for now. Goodbye. And so Conrad brought enemy mine before the Holy Council, and the name of Conrad was added to the line of Jeriba.